Great. Welcome, everyone, to this event on imperialism and the developing world, uh, which is part of the LSE's public lecture series. My name is Karen Smith, and I am the head of the International Relations Department. Tonight's event features Professor Atul Kohli, who will discuss the key themes in his new book, Imperialism and the Developing World, How Britain and the United States Shaped the Global Periphery, which was published earlier this year by Oxford University Press. Professor Coley is the David K. E. Bruce Professor of International Affairs at Princeton University. He is the author of several award-winning books, including Poverty Amid Plenty in the New India from 2012 and State-Directed Development, Political Power and Industrialization in the Global Periphery from 2004. He has edited or co-edited 10 volumes and published some 60 articles. He currently serves as a co-chair of the editorial committee of the journal World Politics, where he served as the chief editor during 2006 to 2017. And the book, which I have here, uh, is a tour de force, and I'm delighted that the International Relations Department is hosting a discussion on it. After Professor Coley's talk, our discussion will be launched by Dr. Natalia Nakfi, who is an assistant professor in international political economy in the department. She is currently working on a book manuscript entitled Renationalizing Finance in the Global South. Professor Coley will speak for approximately 40 minutes and will be followed by Dr. Nakfi's comments for approximately 10 to 15 minutes. We will then take questions from the audience via the Q&A function on Zoom or via Facebook where this event is being streamed live. I've also been told to tell you that the Twitter hashtag for this event is hashtag LSC imperialism. Actually, that just came up in the chat. I've just noticed. Anyway. All right. So uh, without further ado, I turn over to you, Atul. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you, Karen, and thank you, Natalia, for agreeing to read the book. Sorry for that burden. And I look forward to your comments. And Karen, many thanks for going back and forth and helping arrange this talk, as well as to all the support staff, which has made this possible. So I'm going to talk, as Karen mentioned, for 35 to 40 minutes. And uh, I will be happy to entertain questions at the end. I'm going to start with sharing some slides with you. And I'm just opening them. So if you just bear with me. All right, can everybody see that? Uh, Karen, can, you, can folks see it? Okay, thank you. So what I'm going to do in my 40 minutes is to give you an overview of a long book. It's 540 pages, took about a decade of work to write it. And the book focuses both on causes and consequences of imperialism. And in that sense, it brings together what are often two disparate fields. On the one hand, diplomatic history or international relations on the one side and political economy of development on the other side. The focus of the book is on British imperialism in the 19th century and American imperialism in the 20th century. And in the book, I analyze both formal and informal empire. 
to just give you a sense of what's in the book. Here is the table of contents. The book begins with the East India Company and ends with the US war in Iraq in the recent decades. As you will notice on the table of contents, the first half of the book is on the British Empire and the other half is on the American empire. And to give you a flavor of what's involved in the book, let me do two things. First, summarize the overall argument. And then second, very briefly, I'm afraid, given time constraints and length of the book, give you a sense of where the empirical support for the argument I develop is strong and where it is less strong. And after a year of book publication, you get a sense of where you were really sure-footed and where somehow you could have done better. So let me summarize the book in three points. First, as I mentioned, the book is focused on causes and consequences. So those are the two central themes, if you like, that run through the book. And let me summarize you my own argument on causes of imperialism. Those of you who are specialists in this area know that the debates on the subject are legion. Marxist, realpolitik scholars and liberals have their own views and they have developed and have been arguing for a long time on it. My own argument, I will not take sides on those debates at this point for this talk, though I do so in the book. My own argument is the opening line of this slide suggests that the taproot of imperialism is the desire of hegemonic powers to enhance their national economic prosperity. So I suggest over and over as I go through the cases looking for what drove the imperial motives and it was continuous search, if you like, for economic opportunities abroad. That was what drove the British empire in the 19th century and that is what drove ex American expansionism following the Spanish-American War into the modern period. I argued that uh, imperialists do so by undermining sovereignty in the peripheral country, and this is essential to help establish open economic access. So the key intuition, if you like, that drives the book is that national economic prosperity is both an end in itself for nations, but it is also a means to power. That is what metropolitan major powers have sought. They seek to be prosperous because on the one hand, they want their nation to be richer, they want their businessmen to prosper, but that prosperity is also a source of real polity power. And so drive for imperialism is both economic and political. For specialists, I may add that the argument is in dialogue with both realists and Marxist uh, arguments on imperialism, but I hope to transcend them. Whether I succeed or not will be up to you to judge after you read the book, and I will make a pitch for my own book. Please buy it and read it. That's the point of book talks. Uh, the second argument that runs through the book is of course about the impact of imperialism. As I said, causes and consequences. For most of you, it will not come as a surprise that throughout the book, I argue 
that the impact on the countries of the periphery tends to be negative. That's hardly a novel argument, though these days books have been written lately arguing for the opposite. There's nostalgia for empire, or there's a suggestion that the influences are benign on this side of the Atlantic. So to an extent, it needs to be reset that the impact is negative, but I also recognize that that's an old argument. The central argument, which has a degree of novelty, if you like, is that in a world of states, national sovereignty is an economic asset. And since imperialism seeks to limit the sovereign power of subject people, I argue that there tends to be an inverse relationship between imperialism and development. In other words, the less control a state has over its own affairs, the less likely it is that the people of that state will experience steady and inclusive economic progress. Now, qualification should be added right away. I fully understand that national sovereignty is often not a sufficient condition to put a country on path of progress. The suggestion instead is that it's a necessary precondition and then much more is needed for there to also be effective states that can transform and give meaning to sovereignty and turn it into developmental outcomes. And again, for specialists, you will notice that this argument is in dialogue with both dependency type of scholarship, as well as with pro-globalization standpoints. And instead, the book makes a case for state-led development. Those of, those of you who know my earlier work on uh, state intervention that Karen mentioned in the opening remarks kindly, you can read this book as a sequel to that because the argument of the two books dovetail this focusing on sovereignty and the other volume focuses on the conditions under which effective states emerge. So those are the two central arguments on causes and consequences that run throughout the book. Now there are many sub themes that are also interwoven throughout the book. I cannot go over most of them. I picked out three to just give you a sense of the types of arguments that emerge, not when I'm trying to generalize over the British and American experience, but I'm comparing and contrasting them across space, over time, different political economies, et cetera. So while there is an attempt to generalize about causes and consequences, Throughout the book, numerous sub-arguments are woven about contrast and comparison. So let me mention three of them, which I personally find rather interesting. One that emerges quite strongly is when you juxtapose the British Empire with American efforts to influence the developing world in the 20th century. I argue that Britain in the 18th and 19th century needed an empire whereas the United States in the 20th century merely wanted one. And I make the distinction between need and want. Uh, I trace back to the nature of the economies of these two different metropolitan powers. Britain was an island nation, and in the end, it needed its colonies to sustain its industrialization and global power might. The United States, by contrast, was a continental economic power. It did not need an empire. 
empire in that sense was more of a want, more of a desire, more of a political decision. And if you think like that, several sort of several implications and insights uh, follow from thinking like that. The one which I find sort of quite interesting is on the whole, British Empire or through the 19th century, the, there was a fair amount of consensus within the British political class that empire was needed, necessary, and on balance desirable. By contrast, in the United States, starting from the Philippines War all the way up to the Iraq War, every time the United States intervenes, there's enormous debate about whether they should or they should not. And in that sense, what you notice is that the decision, when it's really not needed, but it's a want, leads to elite wondering why on earth are we doing this? And so that's one type of contrast that emerges when you juxtapose the two empires. Another type of contrast emerges when I juxtapose formal empire or colonialism with informal empire or when you control, uh, when you exercise significant political influence without controlling territory. Now, for those of you who work in this area, will we'll know well that Gallagher and Robertson, the two famous British historians, had argued that on balance, Britain preferred an informal empire during the Victorian era. And the underlying logic was somewhat complex. And the suggestion was that with the rise and maturation of capitalism, territorial control becomes less and less necessary. So following corn laws after maturation of capitalism in Britain, the mercantilist type of urge that East India Company might have represented starts to slacken off and you really don't uh, need formal territorial control. But of course, then Gallagher and Robinson were stuck trying to explain the scramble for Africa at the end of the 20th century. But that's a whole different debate. The suggestion was that on balance, Britain preferred informal empire. I take issue with that argument as I juxtapose the formal and informal empire. I find the evidence instead supports that on balance, both the United States and Britain before that preferred more political control than less political control. That is, they, they would have gone in for more control but settled for less when they faced opposition. And that opposition could have been either domestic or global from other competing powers in the area or even further. So that's a second type of juxtaposition that emerges. And third, just as an example, as I said, these are some insights uh, that emerge from contrasting nature of imperialism over time. The third is, the 19th and 20th centuries represent very different terrain, so to speak, in which to build informal empire. My suggestion in the book is that in late 20th century, informal empire has become more and more difficult. So we see more and more failed imperialism uh, on part of the United States, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's Iran before that, uh, it was Vietnam War. And I suggest that the key difference 
in the 19th and 20th century are the political conditions on the global periphery. Now, of course, that periphery is extremely diverse, but I generalize that what has changed dramatically over the two centuries, and this will not come as a surprise to you, but it's worth pondering, is that vertical authority structures in the global periphery have been replaced by mass politics. That is to say, gone are the pashas, the maharajas, the tribal chiefs, the sultans. These were the folks who could deliver the if you like, the, the subservience of their own people by reaching and forging uh, arrangements with colonial powers. And this in turn had facilitated uh, informal empire. By contrast, in the 20th century, the slow but steady emergence of plebiscitarian politics, mass politics has made these building blocks, if you like, of on which informal empire rested much more tricky. It is very hard to find intermediaries out in the global periphery that will do your bidding for you. You can always find them, but then they're very quickly opposed by others who can mobilize masses for nationalist ends, whether genuine or not so. And so as a result, as the global excuse me, as the authority structures in the global periphery have changed, so have the difficulties of establishing informal empire. And I should just add the, the key concept I use that informal empire requires is the creation of stable subservience. So whether it's in the 19th century as Britain is trying to establish control in Argentina, Brazil, or in China, or in Egypt. What they were seeking was stable and subservient rulers, those who could facilitate stability so as to facilitate economic interaction, but those economic interactions should be at the behest and on the terms uh, provided or written down by uh, the metropolitan powers and hence subservience. So stable subservience is an essential condition or essential mechanism, if you like, for establishing informal empire. Britain did it relatively successfully in the 19th century. United States has succeeded at times, but has failed at other times too. And the underlying difference is what all has changed in the periphery uh, as well. Of course, global norms and et cetera have changed too, but a key change is how the periphery itself is governed and the emergence of mass politics. All right, so those three slides pretty well give you a flavor of the argument of the book. The causes, the consequences, those are the two I generalize across US and uh, British cases and the three comparative insights that emerge uh, as examples of some sub insights in the book. Now, how well does the, does the uh, evidence fit? So I'm gonna spend about next 15, 20 minutes. I have taken up by my calculation about 15 minutes. I'm gonna take about 20 minutes to go over this example. Some, uh, some, to give you some sense of the empirical evidence uh, in the book. 
Now, first, the whole issue of why imperialist imperialize, keep in mind that the two rival explanations with which I am in dialogue with, with which I'm trying to distinguish my argument as I'm sort of studying cases and different historical episode, I'm trying to see who's more right, who's less right. The, the two intellectual enemies, if you like, that I'm dealing with are more strictly security oriented realism, which might suggest that imperialism was dr driven mainly by concerns of power politics, as well as a sort of more narrow understanding of uh, sort of, if you like, instrumental Marxism, which would suggest that imperialism was mainly at the behest of captains of uh, captains of business, industry, and finance. That is not to say that my argument is not consistent with certain types of realist arguments, as well as certain types of Marxist arguments. I'm happy to elaborate on that point if anybody is interested, but a better suggestion will be do take a look at the conclusion of the book where I develop these points in more detail. So let me walk you through the empirical evidence, which I think is more consistent with my suggestion that the key, that the tap route was pursuit of national economic interest, which is partly a political concept as to national and partly economic because the end goals are still prosperity. So the first important case study in the book is a detailed analysis of East India companies uh, in actions in India over century, century and a half. And here, this is what, one of the easier cases to deal with in the book because the evidence is strongly supportive of the, uh, uh, of the fact that British, mot mot excuse me, British motives were simultaneously uh, political and economic. The British state benefited handsomely and private British interest also benefited handsomely throughout that century. As examples on, a ton of data and examples in the actual chapter to just sort of give you a flavor of how the argument develops. The biggest, biggest political, no, excuse me, the biggest economic benefit for the British state was more or less a free British Indian Army. British Indian Army was essential for the spread of empire and it was for the most part paid by Indian land revenues. At the same time, Variety of private interests also benefited. Well, <clears throat> in the 19th century, for example, the classic case is of the triangular trade gets, that gets established in India, whereby Britain, uh, of course, exports uh, textiles to India and opium is produced and exported from India to China and from China tea comes back to Britain. And this trade helped make enormous number of fortunes in, uh, in the British economy, both for it helped sustain textile manufacturing, even after Britain had lost its competitive edge in the second half of the 19th century, colonized, excuse me, colonies like India allowed it to maintain uh, that edge. And on the other hand, it also allowed them to make money uh, companies like the East India Company in the first half of the 19th century by selling the tea they were bringing from China 
for which they really had not even paid because it was mainly produced by Indian labor on the land that East India Company had uh, acquired. So the East India Company fits rather well with the overall suggestion that the driving force of empire was pursuit of national economic interest and both the British state and moneyed interest in London cooperated to uh, pursue that agenda. The Britain's informal empire in the 19th century, I, I explored three cases, British role in Argentina, in China, opium wars, and after that, as well as in Egypt throughout the century. And in retrospect, I think the evidence that the driving force of imperialism was national economic interest is much stronger for Argentina and China than it is for Egypt. I think I can sustain the argument well through there. The Egyptian case is a little, little more complex both because of Ottoman Empire and the real politic considerations that constantly kept coming up in Britain's need to deal with, with Russia on the north, routes to India on the, at the same time. So political and strategic considerations were always present in how, what to do or not to do in Egypt. And that complicates the argument. However, I do suggest that economic issues were never far from uh, the overall agenda of imperialism in Egypt. I do have a long chapter on actual British colonialism that followed East India Company in India, and then on scramble for Africa with a specific focus on Nigeria. I think India's economic importance hardly requires sort of uh, to be said and re-said. I think I've found it relatively easy to sustain the argument that well up to the beginning of 20th century, uh, India was of great economic importance to Britain. And I sustain, uh, rest the arguments uh, of causation on that fact. Nigeria becomes more complicated because entire scramble for Africa becomes a little more complicated. That is of course, deeply tied with developments within Europe in terms of rising power of Germany, et cetera, and whether they, these power conflicts are being played out in Africa. That's an old, old argument has been debated back and forth. However, what I find is that especially for West Africa, the security argument is just not that strong. West Africa was neither en route to anywhere. It's not like Egypt. And it certainly sort of was not needed as a strategic uh, as a strategic acquisition. Uh, that argument just doesn't make sense for West Africa. On balance, I think a weak economic argument can be sustained for scramble for Africa, but I will concede that it is more complicated than some of the other cases. Moving on to the American side of things in the 20th century. I have three major chapters. The early US expansion is in Cuba, Philippines, and China following the Spanish-American War. And here, I think much of the historical evidence that I examined seems to fit relatively well 
that significant components of why the US made the decision to expand were economic decision, the arguments that were repeated by policymakers as well as business leaders was the need to find outlets for overproduction as well as to need to smooth out the business cycle by exporting goods and capital. And a similar set of arguments was made to, to establish an open door to China so that China does not become a protected market first for Britain and then of course, later for Japan. And so hence open door arguments. The open door in China as well as colonization or near colonization of Philippines and Cuba were driven by economic motives in the Philippines, at least in the sense, not directly, Philippines was not thought to be of great economic importance at the beginning. It was more as a stepping stone to the China market. It, Philippines was to become America's Hong Kong. And in that sense, the, the deeper motives were, uh, were economic. It is important to focus on this early period. While a lot has been written on this period, the implications that I take for that from the early discussion, let me mention a couple of them, which matter for understanding American way of doing empire. First, well before the Cold War, right? Well before the Cold War, US was no friend of peripheral nationalism. One can argue that later in case of Vietnam, oh, the reason US is fighting Ho Chi Minh all has to do with saving the world from communism. But this early examples in Cuba and Philippines, the United States turned against both Filipino nationalists and Cuban nationalists. They fought the war in the name of supporting nationalism in these countries against Spanish, against Spanish colonialism, but very soon turned against indigenous nationalists. And I think that's a very important lesson to learn because what we notice is that during Cold War, it becomes quite difficult to disentangle causes away from, is it really being done to fight communism or is it something else? And I'm arguing it's something else and that something else is that the United States has fought nationalism in the developing world from the very beginning. And that is part and parcel of what imperialism is about is to control uh, and undermine sovereignty on the global periphery so as to establish open economic access. So it's important to notice that well before Cold War and well after the Cold War, the United States has fought third world nationalism. And that allows me to argue in the second part of the book on the Cold War period, that the real fight was not against communism, but was against nationalism in the developing world. But still on the first, the first early US expansion, the first point to notice there is that US was no friend of peripheral nationalism. And the other thing to notice is the strategies the United States used very early because they have become the American way to empire. From the beginning, the United States used hard militarism. For example, in Philippines, they fought the two-year war, which was a bloody war. And then that strategy was repeated in Vietnam and most recently in Iraq. 
a second set of changes that were second set of mechanisms, if you like, for establishing empire that are noticeable in the early phase are forced regime change. So in Nicaragua, for example, the United States undermines a potentially nationalist leader with a subservient ruler, ruler who might facilitate uh, economic stability. And the third thing which is in interesting to notice is the strategy United States adopts towards creating open door in China. Now China was much bigger problem that US alone could have handled. So it essentially enters into an alliance of imperialists along with Britain, Germany, to an extent even Russia and, uh, and Japan. And it's an early sign that when problems are big and complex and what is needed is some sort of establishing uh, subservience in the global periphery, the United States is happy to enter into a multilateral uh, compact. And the open door is a very good example of early inclination to pursue openness while cooperating with other imperial powers. So those are some of the arguments that I developed through the example, through the focus on um, American expansion following the Spanish-American War. Then the second big chapter on the United States investigates three sets of major interventions during the Cold War. These are likely to be more familiar to many scholars, especially scholars of international relations. These were the coup against Mossadegh in Iran, Vietnam War, and the coup against Allende in Chile. My argument is that in the Iranian and Chilean case, those two cases, the key suggestion that motives were economic pretty well holds, but it has to be understood both in a narrow, but as well as a broad sense. The narrow sense is of course, there was petroleum interest in Iran and there was threat of expropriation of American multinational corporations in Chile. But you cannot really pin the entire imperial exercise on such narrow economic motivations. What the, what the evidence suggests is that is, there is a broader economic agenda. And that broader economic agenda, I argue, is sort of setting the economic norms for the period in the regions. So in Iran, the real issue for the United States, in addition to assuring that British petroleum is not nationalized by Iran, and at the end, of course, the United States gets its own good share of British petroleum, but leaving that issue aside, which is too obvious to hang the whole argument on. What the US is also doing by supporting the coup against Mossadegh is saying who has the right to control natural resources. And in that sense, it's trying to forestall oil nationalization, which it does for about two decades. It doesn't totally get rid of them. They can't, even Saudi Arabia, the American client state moves in that direction. It can't totally get rid of it, of eliminate that possibility. But the United States successfully delays that agenda of 
national control over natural, excuse me, national control over natural resources by developing countries. That's what was at stake in the coup against Iran. And in Chile, of course, the narrow goal of getting rid of Allende and preserving some economic corporation interest, that's well known. But what the evidence shows is that the United States is drawing a line when it orchestrates the coup against Allende, that there will be no more socialist types of experiments in its own backyard. Now recall, Allende coup is orchestrated just as the United States is losing in Vietnam. And there is a sense, you're going through Kissinger's documents, you get a very clear sense, you know, that we may be losing out in faraway jungles, but we're not going to lose in our own backyard. And that meant that we cannot have any more Allende's sort of in South of American border. So it's a boundary setting exercise as much as it is recovering a couple of corporations' interests. So it's in that sense that I make the economic argument uh, for Iran and Chile. Vietnam is, of course, a lot more complex. You know, Vietnam, on the face of it, is a classic sort of failed Cold War effort trying to stop a country from going communist. But I think that's too narrow an interpretation. Uh, I think if you study closely how the US got into Vietnam, at least that's how I argue, that they were trying to essentially preserve French colonial rule in Vietnam because the US thought that was the only way French economy would recover after World War II, as well as to not encourage the French Communist Party, which would have uh, gained, uh, had Vietnam been made sovereign. So they were trying to preserve French economic interest just as they were trying to help British, British economic interest in Iran. So this is right after World War II, United States is trying to put together its own Western coalition with Britain and France as key partners and helping preserve their colonial interests is what got the United States into Vietnam. Of course, once they got in there, they had no way to figure out how to get out without uh, absorbing uh, the shame of it. And so they had to maintain what came to be known as credibility, which is, of course, the currency of an informal empire. So you can run an informal empire without having to send troops because your word is taken seriously. So maintaining credibility uh, became the real issue for staying on in Vietnam. But I argue that the, origin were, uh, the origins were in trying to help France maintain uh, its colonies. Finally, I have a chapter on US Cold War. I'm sanguine of time, Karen, in five minutes, I will finish. Uh, so uh, the two chapters are on imposing Washington consensus. And uh, I find that very much fits the economic case. I will not elaborate because my uh, time is running out, but repayment to American banks was a central issue there. The Iraq war is more complicated. It's also evidence is pretty murky. We don't have historical archives for things like Iraq war. So one sort of tries to make the best one can do. And I end up arguing 
that uh, Iraq war was driven by a somewhat vague but grand goal of imposing Pax Americana on the oil-rich Middle East. Lastly, in the five minutes I have left, uh, the evidence on impact of imperialism, I'm going to very quickly run through this. The, the evidence I think suggests, or I think I can argue based on evidence that of course the impact is negative, that's not new, but it's worse under colonialism, that is to say, fully colonized countries do worse, economically speaking, in the imperial venture. A little better performance, economic performance is possible under informal empires. But if steady inclusive growth is what is needed, then you need sovereign and effective states. So I think I'm able to show that degree of political control a peripheral country has over its own affairs matters quite a bit for economic outcomes. The argument on that the impact is negative, as I said, is hardly new. The mechanisms is where there is some innovation. I focus on sovereignty. This can be juxtaposed to the Wallerstein type of systems theory as well as against uh, the hyper-globalization folk. The evidence is quite strong in the 19th century that a fully colonized like country like India does much more poorly than a semi-colonized economy like Argentina or Brazil. I will not go into the details because the time is running short but the evidence I examine shows near economic stagnation in India, but considerable commodity-led growth in places like Argentina and Brazil. And I interpret this growth is as a payment to indigenous elite for facilitating cooperation for the metropolitan power. Finally, this, the evidence in late 20th century, which I develop in some length is sort of during Washington consensus years from 1980 to 2005, I'm able to demonstrate that countries that embrace the Washington consensus, especially in Latin America, do much worse than Asian countries which pursue their own economic path. And therefore, I'm able to suggest from colonialism via informal empire to more sovereign and effective states there is a direct inverse relationship between sovereign control and economic performance. So to finish my talk, the concluding statement that I'll make is the last line on the slide, that economic progress on the periphery has tended to vary with the degree of sovereign control states have to shape their own economies. Thank you. Thank you very much, Atul. That was, uh, as I thought, going to be a very rich presentation, um, even though I very, you know, hardly touched on all of the, um, the extensive evidence that is in, uh, in the book. I highly recommend uh, the book for more, um, for more on these arguments. Um, it's already generated, and you've already generated quite a, quite a number of, uh, of questions. 
Uh, but I'm going to turn next uh, to uh, Natalia for um, uh, her uh, thoughts on the book and on the presentation. So over to you, Natalia. Hi, sorry. <laughs> okay, so thank you so much for that, um, Professor Coley. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm maybe not the most controversial discussant uh, <laughs> that could have been selected because I actually wholeheartedly agree with, with the central thesis of the book, which is that, um, you know, imperialism is motivated by, by the needs and desires of hegemonic powers to enhance their national economic interests. Um, and that this is, this is done by undermining sovereignty um, in peripheral countries and establishing what, what Professor Coley calls open economies. Um, and of course, it then follows that, that if state power and, and state autonomy is necessary for economic development, there, there is a negative relationship between imperialism and, and development. And, and this book does such an excellent job of empirically substantiating, um, you know, in, in the case studies, the concrete economic stakes that, that imperial economic elites were motivated by. So for instance, um, you know, in, in the case of the US during the Cold War, ranging from the more obvious control of oil in Iran and control of copper in Chile uh, to the less obvious Vietnam, which was about helping US allies maintain their own imperial power. And, and you also make the very important point that empire building may or may not be in the broader societal interests of those in the hegemonic power itself, because it can at times also just reflect the narrower interests of economic elites in these countries. And, and even if the state or takes into account these broader national goals, that the interests and, and preferences of economic elites obviously always carry very heavy weight. And my, my comments will build mainly on, on this point that, that Professor Coley makes in the book. Um, and I'll focus on, on the US case. Um, and you know, the, the comments are really just framed as further questions for, for Professor Coley, which you, you should feel free to pick up in the discussion or, or not, if, if there are many other um, questions from, from the audience. So one thing that struck me as I read through your book was that you, you always emphasize market opening as a key US goal, and, and you present the three um, time periods of US imperialism as periods of imperial policy continuity rather than change. Um, on the other hand, as, as recent, um, recent debates over you know, deindustrialization and the left behind um, in core economies have, have really brought to light, the US economy has itself you know, changed remarkably since the post-war era. Um, some, some have called this financialization, um, but you know, basically it's a well-known story. The, the importance of manufacturing in the US has declined while the importance of the financial sector has risen dramatically. So, so if, if, as you say, imperialist governments always take the preferences of um, dominant economic elites into account, I wonder, is there not something more systematic that we could say about the changing character of the US economy itself? Um, the, the sectoral interests of 
dominant economic elites within the US and how this impacts on the nature of its imperialism or uh, on the type of market opening policies that it use. Um, and especially if, if we look at this you know, in, in terms of impacts on the peripheral countries itself, it, it seems like American imperialism in the post-war era was quite different from the American imperialism of the post-80s era. So, so the imperial, American imperialism in the post-war era was compatible some form of state-led development in, in the periphery. So, so import substitution, industrialization, um, state-led export promotion and other statist economic policies were predominant across most regions in the developing world um, before the 80s. Of course, with varying degrees of success, but, but that's not, not the point. Um, but then after the, the, the post 70s, so, so in the post 80s era, um, external pressures changed very dramatically for, for developing countries. Um, and this is all illustrated in, in the chapter of the book where Professor Coley writes about the 1980s debt crisis in Latin America, where market opening and, and financial liberalization conditionalities were imposed by the US, um, but also multilaterally through the IMF. But you know, th this wasn't just the case in Latin America. Uh, Washington consensus conditionalities were imposed across the developing world um, to varying extents, of course. So, so for me, the question is, why was the post-war American imperialism compatible with some degree of state-led industrialization, um, even in the, the US's client states of Latin America and the Middle East? Um, while in, in the post-80s era, it was not at all compatible. Um, and, you know, bearing in mind that this was, or in hindsight at least, seems like a very stark uh, policy change towards the developing world. Um, at least the changes in the peripheral countries' uh, political economies were very, very dramatic. You know, you, you mentioned in the book, privatization, liberalization, in what were formerly quite statist economies. Um, one explanation which you disagree with in the book is that Cold War geopolitical um, concerns meant that the US was more accepting of, of status policies where it needed to be in a pragmatic fashion. And um, you know, this explanation is often used, for instance, to explain the US's relatively permissive attitude towards Korean state intervention. Um, so, so basically that like political concerns overrode um, economic interests. Another explanation could be that during the post-war era when American manufacturing was dominant, US imperialism actually required uh, a degree of industrialization in the periphery to, because they needed the periphery to import its capital and intermediate goods um, and other manufacturers. However, after the 70s, when, when US manufacturing began to decline and finance became dominant, um, US foreign economic policy shifted to financial market opening, which benefited its global banks and, and especially its portfolio investors, but didn't necessarily benefit its manufacturing firms. Um, and all, all these are points that you, you touch on in various parts of the book, um, and then you disagree with, with them in, in the conclusion. But I do wonder whether there are not broader conclusions that we can draw from, from this. 
or another way to say this um, is that to me, your argument doesn't necessarily seem inconsistent with what you called the instrumental Marxist argument. Um, so just to finish off, I leave a few further questions um, out there for following on from, from what I've just said. Um, so do you, do you see a change in the character of US imperialism in terms of the nature of the market opening policies it promotes? And are there some types of market opening policies that are better for the periphery than others? Uh, do you think the increasing dominance of tech firms in the US economy will lead to um, protection of intellectual property becoming a more important area of foreign economic policy than say tariff reduction or financial liberalization? Um, and then although, I mean, although it might be unlikely, but but this has kind of become part of the debate again. So, so if we do see a return to industrial policy and rebalancing of, of the economy back towards manufacturing uh, and a reigning in of finance in, in countries like the US and, and the UK, um, for instance, as part of you know, a proposed Green New Deal, do you, do you think that this will have any impact on the type of imperialism that the US will pursue in, in the developing world? And then finally, do you, do you think that Chinese imperialism, which you touch on in, in the conclusion, will also evolve as the China me, Chinese economy itself develops and changes and, and might it evolve for, for the better or for the worse? Uh, that's it for me. Thank you, Karen. Great. Thank you very much, Natalia. Right. Um, Atta, would you like to address some of those questions before we add in the questions from the audience? And I've got a couple myself. But um... I'm happy to be guided by you, Karen. Is that what you would like me to do? I mean, I think, I mean, we've had some, I mean, some of what Natalia has raised have come up in a, you know, in a, in a few of the comments. So perhaps if you, maybe if you, um, you did address what you wanted to from that, from that list of questions, and then we can open it up. That would be, yeah, shall we proceed that way? Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Natalia, those are really good comments. Thank you for reading and thanks for thinking about it. Let me pick a couple of points. Uh, your last set, set of questions were really asking me to predict the future of imperialism. I've done, I'm pretty tired looking at the past of it, having done it for a decade, you know, and now you want me to say what's coming next. Will the US do this? Will China do that? Uh, I might have something to say, but I don't think it will be very deep, you know, sort of it will be speculative. So let me focus on the question, which I found quite meaty was, why was US imperialism more compatible with state-led development in the post-Second post World War era for three decades or so? I think, you know, I think some concession has to be made and should be made, and it doesn't take away from the centrality of my argument that Cold War did have something to do with it. You know, the Cold War did create political space for developing countries to maneuver. But it is also the case, you know, as Danny Roderick outlines in his book on globalization, you know, the Bretton Woods institutions were designed in a way that left the room and space open for alternate national pathways. They were never meant to be as restrictive. Uh, you know, 
don't forget, in addition to Cold War, this is an era of Keynesianism in both United States and Britain. This is all pre-Margaret Thatcher, pre-Reagan. And in that, the hegemony of Keynesian economics, which is also gets embedded in the foundation of Bretton Woods institutions, sort of, it was soft control over the global economic order rather than attempted harder control that follows with the rise of Reagan and Thatcher and the debt crisis and that you are also studying. Uh, I think another factor which one should not underestimate is the importance of third world nationalist leaders. So following World War II, you have the Nasser's, the Nkrumah's and the Nehru's of the world, you know, sort of banding together imperfectly in non-aligned movement. And so this nationalism, along with a global power structure, which is bifurcated between the US and Soviet Union, at least partly, I think creates political space for about two, three decades for the developing world in which they're able to pursue a degree of political, a degree of economic autonomy. And that space shrinks with the emergence of Washington consensus. So, you know, as I argue in my Washington consensus chapter, it's not just debt repayment that is of importance to the United States, but that's pretty central. The 10 core banks of the United States are the most exposed to four Latin American countries. And that's heart of the project of Washington consensus. But as important as I suggest is, is the rolling back the state-led model of development. And so in that sense, it is nearly explicit argument against state-led import industrial import substitution type of industrialization. So it's saying enough of these three decades. Now it's time to pursue a different pathway. And from 1990s onward, we get rolling back of the state, especially in Latin America. You're right that that was also true elsewhere, but countries like China and India never came close to embracing the Washington consensus. So the big giants simply did not go there the way Brazil's and Argentina had no choice but to go there. And there, if you look at the data, US trade and investment increased pretty sharply after the Washington consensus is imposed. So I hope that sort of gets at some of your questions. Great, thanks very much. All right, we'll start um, with some of the some of the questions that have been uh, coming in, um, and I think I'll start with um, uh, a question that is more uh, about definitions, which comes from I'm, I apologize if I'm um, mispronouncing the name, Dr. Eche Kojapichak, I think, uh, from the Open uh, University, who asks about why you chose to use the term imperialism. Uh, rather than colonialism and post-colonialism. Um, don't know if you want to address, do you want to take some of these in together or do you want to take them one at a time? One at a time may be better. It gives you a chance also to select the questions you're going to ask next. Okay. Uh, so, um, you know, colonialism is one variety of imperialism. I also wanted to discuss informal empire, which is influence without territorial control. And I thought that the term imperialism is a good umbrella term, which can incorporate both formal and informal empire and formal 
empire and colonialism I use inter, you know, exchangeably and informal empire is a different form of imperialism. So in my thinking, maybe I need to rethink that if you think I made a mistake there, that imperialism is a good umbrella category if you're going to suggest that there is a type of continuity between colonialism and in, in informal empire, that it's a difference of degree rather than of type. So I'm, I'm just gonna jump in here with, with a question that um, I was thinking about when, when I was reading particularly the last chapter of the book, and that's the relationship between hegemony and imperialism. Um, are all hegemons imperialists? In other words, is it possible to be a hegemon without being an imperialist? Are there any historical examples? Um, and and you know, so then why? Um, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I'll just leave it there. Are there any? Is it possible to be a hegemon without being an uh, imperialist? The short answer is yes. You know, in my definition of imperialism, I put a lot of emphasis on use of force. So asymmetrical power is not imperialism. So this is not the Johann Galtung type of argument. It is also not sort of, sort of, it's not my colleague John Eikenbury's argument about sort of liberal hegemony being benign because that may well be true, say when it comes to US relations with Canada. United States has a hegemonic relationship with Canada, but what I would not want to characterize it as imperial, even though I'm a Canadian, you know, so I, I would not characterize that relationship as imperial. That's same with American relationships in the post-Second World War period with much of Western Europe. It is hegemonic, but it's not imperial. They are relationships which have been negotiated. I think the key thing to keep in mind is that hegemony implies some degree of legitimacy, whereas imperialism does not. Imperialism implies it was forced down their throat. And that's a key distinction. So yes, there are hegemons that negotiate relationships of you know, superiority and subordination in which the subordinates calculate that this is the best we're going to get. And they enter into that relationship more or less voluntarily. And that I think is not imperial. So this, this leads on to some um, sort of, because it was also um, in the conclusion, you did address China and the issue of China and sort of China's arising, rising hegemon. Um, and, uh, and some of the, there have been several questions uh, regarding China, and I know you just said you're not predicting the future. <laughs> Though somebody did wonder whether this would be your next, uh, your next book would be on, in fact, Chinese um, imperialism. Um, but I guess, the, so some of the questions have been, um, there are two, two different takes on it. Um, and the, the first would be, I'm trying to find it now, I've lost it. Um, whether or not what we're seeing, now, particularly say with Biden, or I would argue even with Trump sort of ver versus China, is this US an example of US attempt to keep China subservient? Um, so this is another example in a, in a, of, of US imperialism vis-a-vis -vis, uh, China. And then another take on uh, China 
uh, is whether or not um, what we're seeing, in fact, on the part of China is rising Chinese imperialism. Um, are you identifying that? And I know that the book, um, so you stop it in about 2019, and I just wonder if anything in 2020 has changed, has made you think that, that you could come to, to some sort of um, uh, begin to see more signs of this or not as, as you were. So a couple of questions on China there. Yeah, I think the first question is easier to answer. I don't think I, with the glasses that I'm wearing, I would interpret US actions against China as imperialistic. Now, there are classic great power conflicts in which a rising power is trying to lay out its own agenda and United States does not want that agenda to unfold. It will affect its interests, whether they're strategic interests in Asian hegemony or economic interest in Latin America. Uh, and so in that sense, the US-China conflict, you know, in many ways, for those of who know their 19th century economic history, would recognize the relationship resembles US role in Latin America when Britain was deeply hegemonic. So when British influence is nearly paramount, a word the British love to use at that time. But when their influence was paramount in places like Argentina, American efforts to make inroads were deeply resented by the British. And yet the Americans had started succeeding. Were American actions imperialistic at that time? No, you know, it's two competing powers fighting for influence and economic rewards in Latin America. And and China and America, American competition reminds one of that period in a rough and ready manner to the extent that any historical parallels uh, are accurate. It sort of has some similarity when the US was a rising power, shied away from using coercion in Latin America because Britain was still a major power to contend with and yet made inroads where it could to seek profits and for its company as well as political influence. So you notice some of those parallels. China is too afraid to use coercion because of American, enormous American power. And so this gets us into the second question. Are, is Chinese expansionism say in Africa or through the Belt and Road Initiative, is it beginning to resemble informal empire of the you know, other great powers. And as I argue at the end of the book, that I don't think so. I make a distinction between dependency and informal empire. I said China is creating dependency through much of Africa, as well as other indebted countries, but they have shied away from using coercion for the most part. That qualification for the most part is important because what they did in Sri Lanka, which is essentially exchange debt for a port comes awfully close to what the Americans were doing during the Washington consensus years in the sense of exchanging debt for some concrete assets. And so, and now what's happening in Zambia, sort of as we're talking the events that are unfolding with Chinese debt is sort of part and parcel of that. So some of Chinese actions are beginning to resemble economic coercion 
and in that sense are beginning to resemble old-fashioned informal empire. But for the most part, China has not used gunboats. China has not used sort of insidious methods to undermine leaders of a developing country. They have not involved in regime change. You know, country to watch is China's impact on Pakistan. Pakistan is getting more and more indebted. And how that will unfold is something very important to watch, as well as Zambia and, you know, sort of a couple of other countries with the Belt and Road Initiative. But it's telling that after Mahathir's re-election in Malaysia, Mahathir was able to renegotiate the giant loan Malaysia had taken from China. And so there was a situation in which Malaysia was close to becoming dependent on Chinese loans and a more competent sovereign ruler renegotiated that. So that both shows the limits you know, of Chinese influence, but also quietly how far they had got into Malaysia before anybody even made a noise. And so I think China is creating economic dependencies, but I don't think it's informal empire of the, uh, the manner in which Britain and United States have pursued so far. It may get there. It sort of, it may very well get there. If it gets there, it will probably be in its own neighborhood first. Thanks. Natai, I don't know, did you want to come in on any of these? I mean, I, I guess I, I would just add to that, that um, for a lot of developing countries, the Chinese loans, because they they don't have the same kinds of um, policy conditionality. I mean, they have other kinds of conditionalities, like they have to be used to um, you know, buy, buy Chinese services from, from Chinese state-owned companies and so on. Um, but they don't at least come with the same kind of policy conditionalities that, that IMF uh, loans come with, for instance. So for a lot of um, developing countries that has actually been a force that has created a lot of, a lot of new policy space, um, but then, of course, you know, it, it remains to be seen how it evolves. Like Professor Kohli said, we, we can't predict the future, but, but maybe the Chinese loans will start coming with uh, stricter and stricter forms of conditionality as, as the, chi the Chinese um, economy evolves. But I think the, the contribution of, of this book is to say that, um, you know, it, big great powers will will do what's in their economic interests. It's not, um, you know, China is not good or bad. It's just like, obviously it's foreign economic, economic policy will evolve according to what is best for it. That, that is at least inevitable, even if we can't predict the direction of how it, it will evolve. Great, thanks. And now there's a couple of questions uh, that go back, go back in history a bit. And um, there's one question from, um, Susan Biddle about slavery and um, how she asks, how is slavery, both the slave trade for Britain and the slave workforce in the Southern US impacted the different relations of Britain and the US with empire as regards both causes and consequences. And there is quite a bit about the slave trade in, in, in the book, I'd say, but uh, particularly in the um, 
chapter on uh, India, but. Yeah. It's not a strong theme in the book. It's, you know, some of attention to it is inevitable, especially in, in the you know, 18th century, 17th and 18th century, how India fits into the broader slave trade for uh, the trade. But it plays, it comes up even more strongly in the development of British economic interests in West Africa, how after slave trade, it, you know, uh, they move towards more quote-unquote legitimate trade and then that lays basis for Britain's economic advance into Africa. But I think the thrust of the question is somewhere else, which is, did US and Britain, because of, because of internal use of slavery in the US, did it change the nature of American imperialism? You know, it's a very interesting question. Had I focused more on race as part of an imperial issue, I think that question would have come up sort of front and center. So when I gave a talk on this book at Boston University, my good colleague, Andrew Basevich gently suggested that I pay more attention to racial issues, to race as a factor in American imperialism. By that time, it was too late. I, the book was already getting copy edited. But he had a point that I, that is an important theme in American imperialism that with my economic focus that I downplay just as I downplay the real politic issues. And that can be corrected in a, in a sort of subsequent effort. But I take the question, it's a good one. It's a, it's a rather profound question, which I'm afraid I did not address adequately. Um, and then uh, fast forwarding a bit in history, but still um, uh, within the in the past. So in the Cold War, we have a question um, from Chao Xing Dang. Um, if imperialism blocks economic, sorry, I think you can probably hear my dog. Um, if imperialism blocks economic development of peripheries, how can we understand the anomaly of the Cold War economic miracles of Taiwan and South Korea? Uh, both were fully colonized by Japan, but then under US informal imperialism during the Cold War. So, so how to explain um, South Korea and Taiwan? You know, I wrote a whole book on the subject, uh, state-directed development, the book you mentioned, is focused quite sharply on Japanese colonialism in Korea and the legacy that left for uh, Korea's development. And the argument there was that Japanese imperialism was relatively unique. It was not unique in the sense that it was benign. It was deeply exploitative. It is still, still deeply resented in that part of the world, but it was unique insofar as it prioritized development of states as vehicles of exploitation. Japan was a state-led modernizer itself, and its understanding of how to run its colonies was first and foremost to develop good bureaucratic states. That's what Japan does in Korea. So unlike Britain and India, where they're really focused on creating landlords, 
with the hope that country gentry might play a similar progressive role that it might that it had played in, in British history. The Japanese are following their own model, just like Britain was following their own instincts that economic development will come from commercial agriculture. So if you turn Zamidars into legal landowners, God knows maybe they will even grow sheep and you know they will become wool, you know, sort of producing landed gentry. It was too warm in Bengal for all that, for goodness sake. But leaving all that aside, the focus on creating effective states is a key link in understanding Japanese long-term legacy for Korea's development. So Korean, what the US does in Korea and Taiwan is essentially turns them into political clients, but leaves them alone economically. And that is a function of the Cold War. As long as you guys can grow and grow rapidly and help create enough national wealth and defense to protect yourself against communism, whatever strategy works, go for it. And the strategy that came naturally to Koreans was to follow the Japanese model of development, which was state-led development. And so in that sense, US sort of allows them to pursue economic autonomy while being client states of the Americans as far as politics and military subservience is concerned. And that distinction, I think, is very important for understanding how uh, especially Korea was able to flourish under American tutelage, whereas most other countries, such as Philippines, were not able to follow that path. Natalia, did you want to come in on this? Yeah, I would just just say a few quick words. I mean, that, that's, I guess, like one of the, you know, the biggest debates in, in the political economy of development. Um, and there, there are different explanations, of course, like some that, that focus on these external pressures. And, and like um, Professor Coley just said, they, you know, they highlight how um, the U.S. allowed these countries to develop. Um, using the state, how it was maybe even in the U.S.'s own interests to for them to industrialize against um, the, their communist neighbors. Um, and then there are a whole other set of um, explanations that focus more on the domestic political economy of, of these countries and how they were so different from, you know, other countries that did also receive U.S. support, but like the Philippines or like Pakistan, but but still never managed to to develop and and they highlight how um, powerful states in South Korea and, and Taiwan were able to to domestic business in those countries and push them to to invest um, in sectors that that would be more developmentally productive in the long run. So, so I mean, yeah, of course, I mean, Professor Coley has written a whole book on the subject, but it, it is like, yeah, one of the key, I think, unresolved questions in, um, in the political economy of, of development. Great, thanks very much. All right, we now have, um, we've got about 10 minutes left and there's still lots of questions. Um, there is a, a question here um, uh, from Yakub Aliyev that has come via Facebook, which I think both um, Atul and Natalia can um, could address. And his question is, 
How can developing countries reclaim their sovereignty and pursue state-led development when multinational corporations and foreign investment banks determine who controls state power in these countries? Don't know if you want to give that a go. So, uh, Natalia, you want to go first? Um, I, I can ha have a shot. Um, <laughs> I think... Um, I mean, so so the way I see it, I mean, this is purely kind of speculative. It's not really based on my work or anything. But the way I, I see it is that, um, you know, country like countries that have similar kind of external pressures have have managed to do quite different things with with those external pressures. So there there are also domestic um, there are domestic factors that play in how they exploit or um, or become dependent on other hegemonic powers. So, so you know, if we just take the example of um, the Belt and Road Initiative, um, in some countries like Pakistan, for instance, it's it's led only to further indebtedness, further deindustrialization. So, so the government has not really embraced this um, alternative um, conditionality free external financing source it has not used it to negotiate better terms from from its traditional creditors and it, it's not mobilized these funds to productive uh, developmental ends and then you you know but there are countries who that that have even weaker state capacity who have managed to to mobilize this new resource towards more productive ends so so i think it, it's always um, you know, there are always domestic factors at play. That's, of course, not not to deny the importance of external pressures. So, for instance, uh, you know, during the 1980s debt crisis, when when you know, countries were heavily indebted and and had to repay their creditors, in those cases, there there isn't really much that that you can do. So, I, I think now the the external environment is quite different to 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 that of the the 80s and the 90s. So, so now I think the new policy space has opened up for, for countries to take advantage of if, if the domest their domestic political economies enable them to, to do so. That's a great answer. I don't have anything to add. I was going to say it reflects, it definitely reflects work that I've read uh, by Natalia. So, um, so then a question has come uh, through again from uh, Facebook by Nico Terradas, who asks about the evolution of new technologies and how that affected uh, the practice of imperialism over time. Just wondering if that, you know, so you've got, you know, what, 300 years of, uh, and which obviously technology has changed just wondered if you'd like to take a stab at that one. You know, sort of throughout my study, I was focused on matters economic, and then I would be hit by, you know, reading Hobbesbaum, how much difference the introduction of cheaper shipping made to patterns of trade. And so, all this political and economic focus sometimes would mislead you and ignore how the world of economy itself is shaped by underlying technological shifts. And in that sense, those things are central 
and sometimes we ignore them at our own peril. What I don't think you can do is replace an economic argument of imperialism by a technological argument. So I think you need to build the technological factors into your understanding of imperialism because they influence you know, the coming of guns and cannons and the coming of shipping, you know, rapid shipping and on and on. And then, you know, sort of as Natalia was asking, what difference does finance make? You cannot imagine rapid finance without internet and computer mo moving trillions of dollars, you know, with the press of uh, the press of a button, you know. So, of course, those are critical underlying issues, but technological determinism of thinking about these issues would be much worse than economic or political determinism. Then I think this might might end up being the last question, but I think this uh, addressing this question, I think will um, in fact allow you to 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 basically sum up the kinds of the kinds of arguments that you're making about the impact of imperialism. We have a question from a graduate student at the University of Notre Dame, Jing Li, who asks. What do you think of the arguments um, that, um, that British rule built good institutions in former colonies and the development outcomes in these countries benefited from those previous institution, uh, that previous institution building as a result? Um, I think this, you know, addressing this question, I think pretty much will allow you to, to sum up the impact, um, the impact argument that you make in your book. Yeah, you know, that's a very good question. And, and somebody who has studied India in some detail, I'm especially sensitive to British legacy of good government in India. You know, really horrible economic legacy, but a much better political legacy. And so juxtaposing those two, I have struggled with trying to understand the British imperial impact. And one of the weaknesses of my book is when I say that colonialism was worse than informal empire, because in informal empire in places like Argentina, you at least got growth. But the fact is countries like Argentina ended up with lousy governments because there was no direct British legacy of a good career service, centralized army, professional norms of you know, running. So in that sense, one should not underestimate some legacies of sort of positive institutions. Having said that, you, when you think of British legacy in large parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, there's virtually very little of that left. India almost stands out in a, as an outlier. And even that looks incomplete if you think of Pakistan at the same time. So if you put India and Pakistan next to each other, you wonder what happened to that legacy. And then when you move to Africa, and that legacy nearly vanishes. 60 years of British rule, it's not obvious. Where is the good bureaucracy? Where is the good central banks? Where, are, where is a centralized armed force? And even that weak institutional argument seems to get run rather thin. So I think one should take with a grain of salt of the long-term institutional legacy. I think it holds true in case of India. It's much truer in the case of Japanese colonialism in Korea because they were institution builders par excellence. That's what they did. They focused on building the state. And state building for British came as a sideline almost in India because that's how they were collecting land revenues. 
the need for land revenue required them to sort of create a bureaucracy which was not corrupt. And then they developed an army because so they could extend the empire in the Near East as, as well as in Asia. So developing institutions was not core project of colonialism, but was part of a broader imperial agenda. And one has to keep the bigger picture in mind in which the suggestion that British Britain left behind strong institutions and its colonies does not really hold. Great, thank you very much. Yes, indeed, I thought that would, uh, would end up being the last question and we have indeed come to, to the end of the hour and a half. I would like to thank very much uh, Atul Kohli for, for talking to us about his new book. Um, I do hope that you are able to uh, take a, uh, to read it, to buy it and read it. It is uh, very rich and very thought provoking. I'd also like to thank Natalia Nakvi for um, her um, discussing uh, the, his book. I think it's um, fabulous. Um, uh, um, you know, we, um, we like to give a voice to, to younger uh, generation of scholars and I'm very grateful uh, that, um, that she was able uh, to contribute her views as well. Um, so uh, with that, I thank also the audience uh, for, um, for attending and I hope you've enjoyed uh, the event and there are many more LSC public events to come in um, next term and we look forward uh, to seeing you there. So uh, with that, I thank Atul and Natalia and uh, the audience and thank you very much. <laughs>